This week, Peter and Jonathan discuss how to solve problems in your business, human resources, and holacracy at Zappos. You're listening to The Bcast, the official podcast of bplans.com. Each week we discuss the latest news, resources, and advice for entrepreneurs and small business owners. I'm Jonathan Michael. And I'm Peter Thorson. Hey, uh, good afternoon, Jonathan. Good afternoon. How are you doing, Peter? I'm, I'm feeling agile. I'm feeling lean, nice I don't and spry. Know about the agility thing, but you're looking lean. So that's pretty relevant. That's a good transition. Why is that? To our topic today, how to uh, apply agile methodology to your business. I think there's a lot of learnings that anyone can take from some of these more popular agile techniques, uh, and we'll talk a little bit about what's happening in the world with some of these wilder agile techniques. Uh, as well as uh, a little bit about what you can do with your employees and how small businesses can think about HR in uh, in a very practical way. Yeah, I mean, let's be realistic. You're going to have some problems in your business, whether it's with how you're manufacturing your product, how your employees are dealing with each other and with you. Yeah, or even, th- you know, a uh, more tech-oriented business might have issues with publishing deadlines or getting work done in an efficient way. So if you're on bplans.com today, you're going to find an article that's called How to Solve Problems in Your Business. And it's talking about three different methodologies that have proven track records in the business world. Uh, Peter, can you tell us what those methods are? These three approaches are just some of the ways out there that have become popular over time. So I just wanted to make sure that our audience knew what the three were, Mm -hmm. knew the basics and and kind of what stands behind them, and also how they might apply some of them. So if you think that you handle problems just fine and your business is not in any real danger right now, that's fine. This episode might not be for you, but there may be some listeners out there who think, listen, I've got a lot coming my way and I just don't know how to handle it, or the way I've been handling things doesn't seem to be making any difference, this is absolutely the episode for you. I actually would say that any business can benefit from knowing that these ideas are out there, that they have some potential benefit to them. It's easier to not go the route and know a little bit about it and choose not to, I think, than to suffer the potential failings uh, of not learning from this sort of shared learning that we're all participating in. So why don't we just dive in? Can we start with Kanban? The, The short of this is you can never hear about Kanban without two major points. Number one, Uh, It kind of originates from this notion of the grocery store. The grocery store delivers goods just in time. And this concept of just in time is core to the features uh, of Kanban. And then the second major thing you always hear about with Kanban is that Toyota observed these grocery stores and backfilled, it evolved that into their manufacturing process to great efficiency and uh, actually a decrease in uh, error uh, prone products down the line. Okay, that sounds great. But how does that really apply to a small business who's not, you know, manufacturing cars at a mass volume. Sure. Well, you know, a lot of the software folks kind of took a little bit of this philosophy into into their hearts. And on the Toyota side, you know, what we learned is that this idea of uh, the just-in-time mentality, the idea that, you know, the number of apples that are on the shelf can only stay there for a certain number of time before they go rotten. Mm-hmm. So the idea of putting the right number of apples on the shelves actually depends on how many people will eventually purchase it. Right. And that's what we call in contemporary times this sort of pull, the market pull. 
yeah, demand-based polling instead of pushing the product down the line, errors and all, right? Exactly. So this applies, again, if, if you're in the sort of software area, uh, a lot of the folks who have applied it there have started to think of their own development cycle as, a, you know, maybe a linear process. So, mm -hmm. for example, if the graphics guys can't work on something until the previous group is done with it. And that can be thought of as a sort of linear process. So what you don't want are these individual groups producing the maximum amount of work that they possibly can at any given time, limit the amount of work that anyone is doing, the amount of product that anyone is producing by the amount of capability that the next step down the line can accommodate. You know, how does a small business actually implement this if they want to do the Kanban style? So on the very technical side at mm -hmm. Toyota, the Kanban itself is technically these little cards, and the cards themselves are passed from later stage in the manufacturing to earlier stage in the manufacture. So if I need a door to put into my frame, I would hand the card back. And that indicates that I have the capacity to accept one door production. Mm -hmm. That door is then produced and handed down the line, and my car can be assembled. Thus, if the door itself was faulty, you simply wouldn't hand it down the line. Again, the benefit there is at no given time do you have a massive surplus of door production simply because later manufacturing processes further down the line uh, are not fast enough or can't accommodate as much as your component can produce. If, in fact, you're analyzing the cards as they get passed along the line and you start to see which areas are slower, you can also, as management, look at those cards, say, hey, it looks like these two sections need either more employees or more efficiencies, uh, and those are the things I need to address in order to maximize my potential output. So the metaphor there, of course, is if you're simply making bread, mm -hmm you don't make 10 times as much dough as your oven can possibly accommodate. Yeah, I mean, do you need tools, though, to kind of implement this Kanban process? Yeah, it's a good question. I think, you know, at a medium-sized company, it certainly would help, and there's software versions of this that work pretty well. Um, I would say at a very small business, um, a lot of this is fairly intuitive. Okay. So I would kind of challenge our listeners to do some reading on the Kanban process, and if you are, you know, a sole proprietor, if you've got three employees, uh, you know, let us know what you think. Is it the kind of thing that you already are doing in your mind? And I think one of the major components here that we should make everyone aware of is all three of these ideas are great reads. Again, I would recommend that everyone understands the definition and concepts behind them all. But in true contemporary application, they're almost always greatly modified. Yeah, and it's okay to modify it to your specific business so that you see the maximum results. That's absolutely what should happen. So Jonathan, what if I wanted 1% more approval? You know, that's a tough uh, percentage to try to hit. But the way that you could do that Every is... day, 1%. And I'm going to give you a mindset and a philosophy. That's what Kaizen is. I see. Okay. So this is not so much, you know, a way to implement this massive, you know, problem-solving thing. It's, it's a mindset. It's a philosophy of continual improvement. So Kaizen is about anticipating and avoiding problems ahead of time instead of being surprised and crippled by them. Um, the word literally means change for the better. Um, and again, this was popularized by Toyota. There's actually a great story on NPR called The End of the Line. So there was this factory in Fremont, California that was actually a joint venture between GM and Toyota. Both companies had some problems that they needed to solve and they'd figured that the best way to solve these was to work together to try to solve them. And 
originally this factory was a GM factory and actually had become quite known for just running rampant. There was a union in place and workers were allowed to drink, all kinds of, you know, debaucherous behavior. <laughs> and Toyota came in and implemented their production process. And one of the main takeaways from that was that Toyota uses this concept of Kaizen, continuous improvement from anywhere on the line. Any individual can notice something, innovate, and bring that to the attention of everyone else. So you can improve your drug use on the job. Is that what you're saying? False. I see. So GM had this philosophy of never stop the assembly line for any reason, no matter what. Because mm -hmm. if you do, you're going to get fired because you're stopping production. But because of the situation at this factory, Toyota, on the other hand, had this philosophy of anyone can stop the line. If you see something wrong with the process, pull the chain, stop the line, and fix it. Continuous improvement across the board, and that's going to, in the end, produce a much higher quality product. So that sounds kind of compatible with the previous idea. Yeah, absolutely. But in most companies, I think I really do believe innovation can happen at any given level. If your customer service team is unbelievably great and innovative, a thing as simple as customer service might become your defining characteristic. So is it good to develop a spirit of Kaizen in your company? Yeah, I absolutely think the way to apply this is in the culture of, of your work. It's not the job of the CEO or of your middle managers to be the only ones innovating. If you notice a problem that could be improved, you know, X percent, even if it's one percent, bring it to the attention of everyone else. Right, so it's kind of an open-mindedness if you're a top-down type organization. The way you can implement this with your business today is have a conversation with your employees. Essentially, no idea is too stupid. Please bring your ideas to this you know, job, and we'd love to hear it. It's not always going to be implemented, but we're going to listen to it and we're going to consider it. So really the Kaizen philosophy is something that we can apply. And I think we should probably apply some uh, reading materials, some takeaway reading materials if people want to follow up on that. Yeah, I'd suggest the article Getting Better at Getting Better by Alan Henry at lifehacker.com. I'd also suggest an article that we published on the Live Plan blog, which is our software blog, about our customer called Jed's Plant Pickets. Hmm. And he talks about kind of using that philosophy to find efficiencies in his manufacturing process uh, that leads to him being able to lower his costs without kind of getting rid of the quality of his product. So the third word we've got on our uh, funny words list, we scrum. talked about Kanban, we've talked about Kaizen, and now we've got Scrum. So Scrum is more of a, of a process, an application of process. So what's, what's, the, what's the deal with it? This is another area where I'm not an, an expert. But, but you do it, Jonathan. You do Scrum every week. Here's what I am when it comes to Scrum. I end up being what they call a product owner. Great. So I get to say, here's a project that I want to see happen. I need it to be done sometime in the future. Sometimes I need it done you know, next week. And I pass that on to a Scrum master. Okay. So before we get too culty with our language, because yeah, I think... weird. So while Kanban was predicated originally on pulling the the nature of manufacturing forward, uh, Scrum assumes intrinsically that there is some need to move the process forward, and it maintains a very similar type of focus only on a very small number of things for the period of time that you're working, 
But in those senses, they're similar in almost every other way they're different. So Scrum is a process by which teams can get very large projects done right. by breaking them down into very small tasks mm -hmm. and only focusing on those small tasks for the small periods of time called the sprint yep. that they are focused on those tasks for. And the Scrum is the meeting where they all huddle together. This actually works well when you have a number of larger projects that need to be done because then what it allows you to do, like you said, you break down those large projects into smaller tasks, then you're able to work on those multiple projects because you're taking on each individual task and getting those done in a certain sprint. And then at the end, you measure a thing called the velocity of the overall performance of the team. Mm -hmm. So with the Scrum methodology, which is really probably the most popular contemporary uh, implementation of agile philosophy. So again, mm -hmm. if you want to talk about agile, most people today are talking about Scrum at the implementation level. Um, but this idea of velocity, meaning like the maximum amount of speed at which you can a a achieve a given task, is really the focus of Scrum. But there's okay. also implementation differences. I mean, again, you've mentioned the, the uh, sort of weekly Scrum meetings or the mm -hmm. possibly even daily in some cases. Yeah, and our web team uses uh, the software product Jira for this. Um, it's just a way to track those things together, get all of your tasks in the same, you know, group and work them through the, the line and follow like, how are they doing? Are they getting completed on the time that we thought they would? And there's a thing called the burn down rate, which is in this two to four week sprint, we said we we're gonna complete these number of projects. Well, as that time goes on, have you completed the number of projects that you said you were gonna complete and your burn down rate should eventually go down to the zero. You've completed all of your tasks by the end date. So, I mean, it's cool to think about how does this apply to you know all of our listeners? Right. I mean, maybe that's something that our listeners can write in. I mean, if you're listening right now and you don't think uh, Scrum could possibly apply to you, let's, let's think it through. Maybe we can chat about it. It might be interesting. We'll exercise on our part to see if it could apply. Yeah, and there's an article called Is Scrum Right for Your Business? It's by Sarah Angelis of the Business News Daily. And there's a couple things to think about, you know, is it the right cultural fit for your business. Mm -hmm. It does require some discipline. It requires measuring what you've done and using that to help estimate what you need to do. It's gonna be a time investment to figure out how that whole process works. But both of these approaches, the Kanban and the Scrum approach, have a certain set of like rules, yeah. really, a certain structure to them. So in a way, you have to kind of learn this way of doing things right. in addition to the actual job that you're really doing. And the benefit of taking the time to learn that is that you're going to be able to find efficiencies, you're going to be able to break tasks down into the smaller chunks, and therefore be able to get more done sooner than you would expect. Yeah. So it's interesting to think of these three processes as something you might apply to any given small business. Uh, again, we'd love to hear your feedback on each one, but we really recommend that you check out the links and read more about each one. If you choose to apply none of these three, that's great, but right. we do believe it's better to know what they are and choose not to apply them rather to not know that they are out there for you. So, you know, one extreme example that I've heard about a lot recently, and this is ever since maybe May of this year, uh, you know, at Zappos, uh, Tony, the CEO, sent out a big memo talking about how the company was going to be run 
moving forward. But his approach was called holacracy. It's a progressive, you know, very sort of like ultra contemporary, if you will, right. uh, approach to uh, business management. Uh, but really, this this holacracy is 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 nearly culty, I would say. And and I don't mean that in an ultra critical way. I just mean it's it starts to approach a bit of a culty sort of vibe to it, let's say. Yeah, let's talk about that and we'll get to why it kind of ends up feeling like a cult. Uh, but the basic idea of holacracy is there are no managers. Everybody has value and the ability to work on what they think needs to be worked on. And that leads to what? So, you know, that's that's an interesting starting point. And at the end of the day, what happens is that each individual is tasked with some small portion of what their former manager would have applied to their day-to-day workday by, you know, a series of concentric circles. Each worker is involved in these circles and the circles collide with each other. <laughs> I, To be honest, I've read like seven articles about this yeah. and I cannot re-describe what the process is supposed I'm, to be. I'm getting a little lost as we speak. Yeah, and you know, for me, I I read an article from the New Republic called First, Let's Get Rid of All the Bosses, and that's a really great in-depth article. And it's pretty well balanced saying there are some people who completely buy into it and say, yes, this is the way of the future. And it brings up the people who, you know, weren't really ready for that kind of an offer and how it's impacting the way Zappos runs its business. I would actually recommend that people just simply read uh, Tony's email. He, you know, the whole thing's been published online. It's a, it's quite a long email. He recommends to the reader that it takes 30 minutes to get through. It also links to the actual book that everyone is mm. supposed to read. Uh, and therein kind of is a bit of my concern with the whole thing. I mean, I would love to hear about this going really, really well. Yeah. But I have my concerns about it. And one is the level of learning that it takes t- for a simply tasked employee to perform this networked, managed, systemic approach of holacracy. Yeah. For the person who's, you know, doesn't have a lot of experience and is working at a company like this and previously in this hierarchy, you know, was kind of low on the totem pole, how do then they make decisions and feel comfortable making those decisions with any real sense that, you know, I'm going to keep my job if I make a mistake? Because I don't have this like direct relationship with a manager to talk through that, get feedback, what does that look like? That's that's kind of a crazy concept, I think. It would seem very confusing, I think, on a day-to-day basis for your average, you know, nine-to-five type employee, I agree. I'd also be a little concerned, you know, from a top-down perspective, one of the values of like a Scrum or a Kanban type system mm-hmm. is that if you have uh, very highly skilled workers, there's a couple of worst things you can do. One of the worst things you can do is have them distracted by 10 other things that they need to do in a given day. The other concern is typically management uh, can consist of what I kind of call this master craftsman. Mm-hmm. The person who is best at computer program might also then go on to lead the team of computer programmers, mm-hmm. which is fallacious in two different ways. Number one, you're taking away from their time that they can spend programming computers. Mm -hmm. And number two, their skill set was not in personnel management, which now you've promoted them to. So I'm worried in this Zappos case that what he's doing is redistributing a lot of this management work, and management can be a very skilled profession. Right. You know, and some of the you know criticism of this method so far, you know, might involve the idea of like, oh, well, this is just a way to get rid of managers because 
the problem with managers is you get into this bureaucratic system and you get a high-paid person who really isn't contributing too much to the productivity of the company. So what do we like about the idea of holacracy? Is there anything? No, there's something nice about it. There, there are certainly management inefficiencies. And as your company grows increasingly large, and I think our audience may not relate to this, but they can probably uh, see it out there in the world. If you've got 10,000 employees or 1,000 employees, 500 employees, there seems to be some waste in there. And how do you address it? Mm-hmm. You know, in the smaller scale, you can start to say, hey, I can identify the managers who are wasting time and not being efficient and simply either ask them to improve or let them go. Um, Once the organization gets to a certain size, I'm sure that's very difficult. One of the things brought up by the article that I referenced earlier that I think is a great example of sort of where this doesn't work is the idea of compensation. Who decides who gets paid what? And now that you've gotten paid this amount, and you've done extra great work, and you're ready to get paid more because you think you deserve it, who do you talk to? And the article answers that, which I think is great. At the end of the day, it has this very sort of inter-circular structure, and you've got some just above minimum wage workers asking the CEO of the company for a raise effectively. Another question I would have for this system is there are a lot of directional, functional, uh, sort of, you know, vision-based Uh, direction that goes down to the individual employees that go down to normally the sort of management structure uh, that are decided either at the very top of the company or somewhere in the middle, right? Mm -hmm. So for example, if a marketing campaign is going to go live next month and it's because of these six factors, uh, who is the one who says the deadline is X, the budget is Y? You know, both you and I have kind of communicated the idea of like, look, we don't work there. We aren't involved in how this plays out, so we can't really judge if it's right or not for Zappos. But at the same time, let's be real, okay? If you were working there, what do you think would be your situation? How would you feel about it? I would it? just, I would be bugged out, man. Pretend you received that email, check out the book. To me, honestly, it reads like science fiction. I mean, I'm like reading the Kryptononicon over here, and it's, <laughs> it's a little crazy. Yeah, and I think I'd agree with you, but bringing this back to kind of the overall theme of our episode today about solving problems with your business, I think it's worth noting that there is a possibility of trying to solve problems at such a level that then you actually end up creating more problems by instituting these, you know, company-wide processes that then everyone has to spend time learning, which takes them away from doing the actual work to get a product out, to, you know, do a service. It's really hard to deal with, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, I would, if I can make one recommendation, you know, innovate where you can and don't feel like you need to innovate absolutely every corner of your entire business simply to be innovative. So it's okay to just be innovative in some spaces. And I think that's really the advice I would give to our listeners is if you're great at some things, feel free to stick to those things. You don't need to be absolutely cutting edge innovative in absolutely every aspect of your business uh, on a day-to-day basis. That sounds great. I think that's a great word. Yeah, let's learn from uh, what other people have learned from. Sounds good. So we've got a guest here, Trevor Benson, CFO of Palo Alto Software. Welcome, Trevor. Thanks for having me. Glad to be here. We wanted Trevor to talk a little bit about the concept of HR in the small business world. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. I mean, we've talked about solving 
problems in your business, and a lot of your problems might come from managing employees. So who better than to talk about that than our own HR representative? So when we think about small businesses, uh, especially the smallest business, maybe one or zero employees, it seems like HR is uh, the realm of larger companies, corporate type stuff. Why, why does a small business need to think of HR topics at all? Well, I think most small businesses, even if they're not big enough to have a dedicated HR department, they still need to be aware of HR are issues that could arise. You know, even our company, we are a, a smaller company. You know, similar to other companies I've worked for, you know, as the accountant, it seems very common and often that the accountants are involved in HR-related issues because of, you know, a lot of people equate human resources to payroll, to paying people, to employees. And so they, in turn, get involved with the hiring, the firing. And they're also very good at learning rules, at following guidelines, at establishing procedures. And so I think it's very natural that even in small businesses that don't, you know, even with one employee, you need to start thinking about what you're going to do with those policies and procedures. So really, even at the smallest possible size, you're already dealing with HR issues at some level. Yes, I think as soon as you even have one person, and it could be a small business in your garage, and, you, and that one person might be your spouse or your brother. Or, But as soon as you have even a single employee, you need to start thinking about how you're going to deal with HR issues. So how do you make that transition from my brother, my uncle, my cousin are all putting my products in boxes, that kind of thing, to the point where you're sort of making it official? Is that a transition that you expect a lot of these small businesses, maybe some of our listeners, to be going through at a certain point in time? I think definitely a lot of times what happens is people don't think about it. And then later when things happen, when there's problems, they're trying to retroactively figure out and fix things. And that could be something as simple as delineating you know, responsibilities. Maybe there's a husband and wife team, and maybe one is more adept at a certain part of the business. But eventually there comes a point where you have to sit down and talk about it and draw lines about who is going to do what, when and where, who's going to be responsible. Because at the end of the day, you have to have someone in charge. So uh, in charge of what? What I mean, uh, sorry for being stupid, but what is HR? Where does it start? Where does it end? There's a lot that goes into it. I think, you know, the beginning obviously is the would be the hiring process. And so that could be, you know, how are you going to pay the person? You know, how are you going to track their hours? How, you know, do you offer insurance? Are you required to offer insurance? Um, you know, with the, the new Affordable Health Care Act, how are you, how does that impact you as a, as a small business? Um, we're in Oregon, you know, they're, they just passed a, a sick leave act that's going to affect even small businesses. And, you know, so even as low as one employee, how are you going to track that sort of thing? Payroll taxes, workers' comp insurance. There's a lot of things that are involved that you should think about and know the answers to before you even have your first employee. So it's, it's not just covering to make sure you don't get in trouble. It's, is it more than that? Yes, I think it's more than that. Part of it is recruiting and retention. If you if you haven't thought about some of these things and you're trying to get a you know valued person to come work with you why would they work with you if they don't if it's unclear how are they going to get paid how much they're going to get paid how often they're going to get paid if you do offer insurance how is how does that going to affect them if they have a family if they have other the things that they're dealing with like they there's a lot of things that are are more than just covering covering the legal requirements of having employees. So it could come all the way down to employee retention, which can reduce costs for the business overall and keep the business more effective and efficient over time as well, you're saying? Yes, exactly. And I think also, you know, in addition, you know, as you start to have employees, you, even if it is a husband and wife, the dynamic of the relationship changes. It could be your best friend that you've had since elementary school. But as soon as you start 
a business together, there is going to be some type of issues that will come up, especially if you are, if it's with a close person that you knew outside of this business. Okay, so Trevor, let's assume that uh, one of our listeners or multiple listeners of ours haven't yet hired their first employee, but they know it's coming. Uh, what are some things that over the years of your experience you wish you had known before you started or you think are maybe common pitfalls or things that people won't expect to have to do with human resources? Um, I think one of the biggest things is they don't understand all the, the taxes, I would say, is probably the, the hardest thing. Um, you know, recently we had an employee that relocated to Texas. The hiring manager was was fine with that. You know, that this person had worked here for a while. They could work remotely. Kind of after the fact, you're trying to figure out, okay, well, what jurisdiction do they live in? What workers' comp insurance do they have to be set up with? What unemployment insurance do they have to be set up with? And so I think, you know, if you can do a little bit of that research beforehand, it's, it's not too late if you haven't done it yet. There, you can do a quick uh, Google search, internet search, and find information you can call your local tax jurisdiction. You could call a local CPA. You know, I think there's a lot of resources out there that you can use. All right, so tax information, uh, you know, do some research there, talk to a CPA, uh, get the ball rolling on that. Any other uh, things that people should look out for? I think the biggest thing, and I talked about it a little bit previously, but is to make sure you have a clearly defined role for which they are being hired for. If you are making something in your garage and they're helping pack and ship it, you know, make sure that they know exactly what it is. I think a lot of times with new employees, there's frustrations between the owner or manager and that new employee because they don't, they don't tell them what's expected of them. They don't train them properly. And then they get upset when they don't do it, how they would do it. If you're not clear and concise, it can definitely lead to frustration and confusion. That's great. Thank you, Trevor. Um, you know, I don't want to name any names, but Peter's been really not that that nice of a guy to me lately. And uh, I wanted to ask you, human resources-wise, can you fire him? Is that okay for you to do? From the podcast? Yeah, like just, well, you know, life maybe. Let's move past that. Conflict resolution. What if you have two employees who have a problem with each other? How do you handle that? Well, I think the biggest thing that you need to do is talk with them. So if you have, you know, a lot of times there's conflict and there's there's frustration because people have maybe unmet expectations. They they haven't communicated well. You know, I think as I, I'm a parent of three daughters, and I think, you know, part of being a parent is very similar to being a business owner. Just the other day, my older daughter said some very unkind things to my to my younger daughter and you know I had the conversation with her that sometimes there's things that you say that you can't take back and I think that could happen in a you know an employee supervisor manager role as well some sometimes as a manager you might want to say something that you later regret and so I think you know making sure you think before you speak there's a quote from Stephen Covey that says seek to understand before being understood and I I think that's important so you know to make sure when you're when there is a problem that you're taking the time to reflect and to think about it, to be calm. Well, that's great. So I think we can all agree that Jonathan is uh, hearing uh, and interpreting things unreasonably and is holding a grudge. So thanks for resolving this conflict, Trevor. Uh, great HR work here on the podcast. So Trevor, any uh, sort of agile tips for HR? How do you keep it lean? How do you keep it, uh, you know, make sure that it's all streamlined and, and efficient enough for a small business to really execute? One of the things that we started using earlier this year is a, a company called Zenefits. And the the cool thing about this company is that it's free. If you are big enough to need health insurance, they can be your insurance broker. But if not, it's still a free service to anybody that wants to use it. It can make your small business look and appear 
much more sophisticated than it is today. You go on and you set up your hiring documents. You set the person's email up. It sends them an offer letter. They can accept it, sign it electronically online, enter their tax information, their bank information if they're getting paid direct deposit. Everything is stored online. Yeah, so we use benefits here, but we're no way affiliated with them. I don't think we need really that caveat for anyone listening. <laughs> it's just but a good it's... recommendation. So Trevor, in our segment when we're talking about this Zappos holacracy thing, uh, we'll get a little more detailed about it. But you know, one of the crazy things that happened during this time is uh, the CEO of Zappos sent a memo to all employees kind of offering them the option to get on board with this new management technique or not. Uh, and I think 14% uh, took the option to leave the company. What's your thinking on, a, on an action like that? You know, it's hard to know without being inside their company to know what they were thinking. But from the outside, it almost seems like they had some people that they wanted to leave the company. And so they made this policy to f- kind of force the hand instead of saying we're downsizing. They had to have known that people were going to leave the company after making this drastic of a change. Because if not, it's extremely expensive and takes a lot of time to retrain people. Awesome. I think those are wise words and uh, appreciate the time you've had with us, Trevor. Uh, Any final thoughts on human resources, where to go to learn more or anything like that? I think there's so many rules and regulations that sometimes people get paralyzed with fear and don't do anything. The biggest thing is just to do your best to communicate openly with your employees because a lot of times you will figure out things as you go. All right, thanks, Trevor, CFO of Palo Alto Software here and also our HR lead, our HR manager, our HR guy. If you have a question you'd like us to answer on the show, send us an email at bcast at bplans.com. That's bcast at bplans.com. Our theme music is by Jasinski. The Bcast is brought to you by Palo Alto Software, makers of bplans.com and LivePlan. Visit bplans.com for everything you need to start planning and growing your business.